0: Hey, and welcome to Top Shelf Tech. Today we're joined by Blaze from ZX Security. Welcome, Blaze. Hi, thanks. Hey, um, you were just telling me an interesting story earlier about, uh, you know, you, today we're going to talk a bit about securing your cloud. And you, and you talked a bit about uh, moving away from your previous role looking after turn and why you made that shift. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so I've spent the last 10, 15 years working primarily in the network security space, firewalls, switches, routers, IPS, IDS. And the more I worked in critical environments for that role, the more I started to realize that actually most of the security threats that we were looking at were actually not at the network layer anymore. And they were really at the data layer and at the user layer. And a lot of the mistakes that were being made in on-prem equipment and deployments were being replicated in cloud when people started moving towards it without really having a plan. And so I thought that for me, at least the more interesting aspects of security would actually be better suited in cloud than on-prem.
0: And you got some experience with uh, critical infrastructure working on with TransPower, so.
1: Yeah, um, so I've worked uh, on a variety of um, what's called ICS, so uh, critical systems with throughout New Zealand, and uh, it's pretty interesting to see how the differences with those systems and um, the nature of their business is reflected in their security priorities. So for example, whenever you're dealing with critical systems, uh, availability is way more important than confidentiality or integrity, because at the end of the day, if they can't get to the systems they control, you know, things fall over and people lose power and potentially there's a loss of life there. So it was really an educational experience, but um, it's very, very specialized. So there's a certain set of risks that only apply to that environment and a certain set of controls that only apply to that environment because you could never realistically dream of having an air gap in a corporate network unless you're dealing with really sensitive, you know, information.
0: Yeah, and you you mentioned making that shift um, uh, from firewalls, more cloud security stuff. Um, You know, is there a perception, do you, you, in in your role, do you see it as a perception of that cloud as less secure? And what are are the kind of objections you get around moving Uh, to cloud?
1: There's a lot of FUD going on in cloud and and there will always be because, you know, there's some very specific interests that are pushing their own agenda in on-prem deployments and, you know, selling tin, selling hardware. I think there's no more intrinsic risks these days in cloud than there might be in in an on-prem deployment. I think the challenges are largely the same. The things to think about are very similar. However, how you get those done in cloud is potentially quite different and requires a different skill set, a different um, technology stack. So people are making a lot of mistakes in cloud deployments that have analogs had they done it on-prem, but because it's all new technology, the solutions they had before don't necessarily work in the cloud deployment.
0: So a lot of it's a bit of a shift in in thinking. It's not necessarily being less secure. It's about you got to look at different things.
1: Yeah. And you've got to understand that you're not working in a traditional model and the responsibilities across cloud are very different from uh, any other kind of vendor arrangement. So for example, if you on-prem, you have a outsourced agreement where You've got a company that takes care of patching and you've got a company that takes care of, uh, your network devices, for example, keeping them up to date, your servers, keeping them up to date. There's no direct analog in cloud for that. So a lot of the companies that did the on-prem stuff are starting to try to get into cloud and they're finding that they have to train up a whole lot of new staff and, and learn a lot of new technology. Um, and a lot of clients are not necessarily understanding that depending on how you're using the resources available to you, their responsibilities may change. An example being, if you're spinning up a virtual machine in, say, Azure, you're still responsible for keeping that operating system up to date. Microsoft is not going to do that for you. They'll give you tools to do it, but at the end of the day, you're the one clicking update or allowing your automation to click update for you. Whereas if you go to a platform as a service, say Office 365 or something similar, that all gets abstracted away. So there's a lot of people that are confusing the two and assuming that the virtual machines in Azure will magically be kept up to date, resulting in unpatched vulnerabilities, resulting in potential compromises. The other thing that is very poorly understood, and to be fair, a lot of the cloud vendors don't make it easy, is um, the ability to give access to way more data than is required on any given day uh, to any given user simply by clicking a button. I mean, because we're using um, federated authentication and we're using a single directory to control access to every resource in the cloud, granting access to roles and to individuals becomes a much more critical endeavor. And it can be quite easy to make mistakes that can open up the door to you know, widespread data leakage.
0: Identity and access and user management, authentication—that kind of stuff—is an issue that comes up. We we see commonly all the time. Um, like you say, it's much more critical than it is. Much more critical in a cloud environment.
1: Absolutely, um, and it's trivially easy to fall into the trap of looking at, "Hey, we'll get this working with this super user account in dev, and then we'll fix the permissions in prod, and then as soon as you start playing with the permissions in prod, everything breaks." and then your higher ups decide, no, no, we'll just go with those permissions in prod and then you end up with an issue. I mean, companies that are really good at this still screw this up daily. So how is a small business or how is someone who's new to cloud supposed to get this right? It's, it's a huge, huge issue. And I mean, there's a lot of structure and a lot of frameworks and a lot of recommendations and uh, benchmarks that you can use, but those get found with time and with pain. So getting new companies um, and companies that are starting their journey on cloud secure by default is kind of what we are trying to get across the board.
0: So, you know, there's two parts to that, right? When you originally set up um, hierarchies and access when you first migrate to cloud, there's a bit of stuff to do there, but how, how do you, what advice would you give to businesses who are looking to operationalize that and manage it ongoing?
1: So there's a lot of recurring themes that I see that are actually kind of cloud agnostic that people tend to um, gloss over because a lot of cloud implementations start at the dev level going, hey, let's just try this in AWS or Azure and see if it works. And then magically that becomes production by osmosis almost. So the big things that I think I'm seeing a lot of in the companies that I deal with are um, not setting budgets right off the bat, So a personal anecdote, I was experimenting with a new AWS feature and uh, my monthly bill went from $60 New Zealand a month to $750 New Zealand a month. Uh, And that was literally two clicks. I was experimenting with automated deployments of cloud formations. And one of the cloud formations I used, which was by the way, written by AWS, uh, ended up spinning 13 VMs across the world. So, you know, those kinds of things are really easy to get caught out in. And if you don't have a budget set up, and and AWS and Azure both allow you to have automated notifications when you get close to it. So like, you know, you can set a budget for 80% of what you want your spend to be for the month, and then you start getting notifications. That's a great way to find out if you screwed up, to be fair. Um, The other big one is making sure that you understand which services within the cloud you're going to use and which regions you're going to use and then configure your cloud environment to make it impossible for people to spin up outside of those constraints. So one of the things that um, compromised AWS accounts get hit with quite often is uh, attackers spinning up crypto miners in VMs in regions that the company is not necessarily monitoring. Because you're allowed to use every region by default, it's relatively easy if you don't have a fairly complex monitoring system in place to go and hide VMs for a couple of days in you know, the US if you're in New Zealand or whatever. And so the only time you'll find out that that's happened typically is when you receive the bill at the end of the month for a couple thousand dollars. The other thing I'd probably say is if you're planning on deploying into the cloud as an, like an application, understand which kind of resources you're going to use and make sure that the developers all the way up through to the production accounts have appropriate permissions and roles for those types of resources and do not have any permissions for any of the other kind of resources, simply because as people experiment, it gets pretty easy to spin up things that you don't expect and you don't understand how to secure. Um, And the final big piece of advice that I'd probably give people is to assume that you should develop using templates that are secure by default. So what I mean by that is a lot of these All the clouds support infrastructure as code and templates for resources. So the biggest piece of advice I give to all of my customers is if you know what kind of resources you're going to be using, you can sit down and have a look at what options are available to secure them. You can look at best practices and create a template that is secure by default. It might be overly secured. It might not allow for all the functionality you need, but if you start from a secured template, you can then back off the security to allow the functionality you need. And that gives you two things. That gives you, one, a trail of what was required in order to make everything work so that you can replicate it in the next project. And it gives you the ability to understand what your development process is doing in terms of um, changing your templates so that if you have a change management process in place that looks at security, you already have all the paperwork done for that. So that makes life really easy.
0: Okay. okay. Oh, point. point. <clears throat> Setting up budgets, make sure we're not having blowouts. making sure you've got your identity and user authentication created. Yep. Limit your exposure by uh, restricting to certain geographic regions that you're going to be operating in. Yep. Um, set up secure templates so you only, have, sorry, understand the known resources that you're going to be working with, and restrict to that. And then yep. use templates that are secure by default.
1: Yeah, I think that that would go a long way. Um. I'm is by far and away, so identity and access management is by far and away the one that's going to have the biggest impact on your security. Um, but the budgeting, I find, is a really great canary for um, when the you're sh- first doing the, the initial setup and configuration before anything's live, before anything's prod, uh, and it catches out a lot of uh, accidental configuration mistakes. Um, there, another example I've seen is Kubernetes clusters being spun up by devs and then having auto-scaling turned on, something goes wrong, and all of a sudden that Kubernetes cluster goes from three nodes to like seven, right? And you wouldn't necessarily detect that unless you had monitoring in place. But, you know, if you look at the budget and all of a sudden your budget starts dinging, there's there's something wrong. And it's awesome. kind of a, it's a good health check of the environment, so. Awesome. So
0: the final topic we wanted to kind of quickly cover is that um, with Azure coming to New Zealand, there's been you know a lot of comments around security, data sovereignty, around hosting information overseas. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, it's interesting because what I've seen in the last twelve or so months is a lot of um, government organisations tend to go Azure for infrastructure to cloud. So taking their internal corporate stuff and moving into cloud typically goes to Azure. And along with that is a lot of historical and uh, potentially sensitive information. Now, there are pretty big restrictions on what kind of data can be put into cloud. Uh, Anything classified, restricted, or under can go into cloud according to what I've read from DIA. Uh, But that's still very sensitive information. And there's always been this debate about data sovereignty. You know, where does your data end up? who can access it, which governments can um, get a warrant to look at it regardless of who you are. So there's always been this concern around um, what happens in terms of breaches and what happens in terms of um, putting New Zealand citizen data and Maori data in uh, districts and, and countries that don't necessarily respect our data privacy laws. Microsoft putting an Azure cloud into Uh, New Zealand has the potential to short circuit all of those discussions. It'll be really interesting to see how they handle the various services that they offer um, and see if they offer a New Zealand equivalent. So for example, Azure Active Directory is a global service. Microsoft makes no promises that your Azure Active Directory data will stay in the country of your choosing. Um, They've got a great website, actually, uh, where you can basically select your country of origin, and it'll tell you which regions and which countries your data goes into. And that applies across Azure and um, Office 365. Now I, in an ideal world, what'll happen is when Microsoft moves their data center into Auckland, we'll have the option to go and select New Zealand for all of those categories. Um, what I'm really curious to see is how many of those categories end up in Auckland.
0: Mm. Yeah. So with as you come to New Zealand, it not only... Um, there's, I guess, additional geographic things we should be considering when it comes to security as well.
1: Yeah, um, there's going to be, obviously, performance gains for people that are you know, quite latency uh, intolerant. There's going to be a whole bunch of questions around how the regional uh, backups happen and how the geographic backups happen within the environment. And uh, it'll also be really interesting to see how the pricing works out to see if there's a price premium for specifying that you want all your stuff to be in New Zealand. Uh, So I'm really curious to find out what their longer term plan is. There's not a lot out there on the announcement. Obviously the announcement was made in May. Uh, Fonterra announced they were going into that data center in some way, shape or form in July. So it's very much a developing discussion, but I suspect the government probably has quite a a good view on it and we'll get some some guidance very shortly. Uh, In terms of security, I think there's not a huge difference in terms of securing uh, a region in New Zealand versus the rest. However, it'll be more interesting to see if we can do some kind of filtration based on geolocation, um, because obviously, if all the Azure services are coming from a region that we understand, we may be able to lock down our outgoing firewall rules a little bit more. There might be some some implications for the on-prem people, uh, but certainly, it's a big, big. Uh, um, announcement because they're the first cloud vendor to come to New Zealand and so that gives them a pretty big leg up, in my opinion, around at least getting the government um, ministries on board with them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think exciting times ahead, Um, you know, hopefully we see the acceleration of public cloud adoption with some of these, whether they're real or perceived issues around some of the data sovereignty stuff. and yeah, I guess having the public sector being able to access the breadth of the Microsoft services that will be available as well. So,
1: yeah, it's it, it'll be interesting because the announcements have all centered around Azure so far. But I think the bigger implications are actually around the Microsoft 365 packaging and uh, mm. making sure that you know your SharePoint sites, your Exchange server is in country, uh, means that there's uh, less risk of foreign nationals subpoenaing information, and that. Likely is going to be something that a lot of the people, like the Privacy Commissioner, will be looking at. Uh, I'm really curious to find out if there's any guidance that's going to come out of the likes of the Privacy Office or DIA around that, and if there's going to be additional guidance to ministries that already have cloud in place, because moving from one cloud to the like one region or the other is not an easy thing to do. So that might end up requiring a fair amount of rework, and that could have dance room effects for everyone that works in cloud in New Zealand.
0: So a lot of exciting information, we'll announcements coming up, still a lot more to learn, but uh, yeah, exciting times ahead. Thanks very much for joining us, Blaze.
1: No worries. Thank you.
0: And thanks for tuning in to Top Shaft Tech. See you next time.
1: Cheers.